if funding is freely available, then hiring becomes harder because so many startups have raised capital. And we get a lot of inbound resumes. And I would say like, there's a few things that also really stand out. The ones that stand out is when people have built something. Uh, when either they've been a former founder, they know what it's like to be boots on the ground and, and make something possible when it seems so difficult. That mentality, I think, is like, you want people that will just think of it as their responsibility and get shit done. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Do you employ or pay workers in other countries? Even if you don't yet, you might soon. Now that remote work is the norm, employees have more freedom than ever to move around. If you want to keep the best people, you have to stay flexible. That's why remote makes it easy for companies of all sizes to employ global teams. They take care of international payroll, benefits, taxes, and local compliance, so you can focus less on paperwork and more on growing your business. Remote helps you onboard full-time employees or contractors in countries all over the world in minutes on its simple, easy-to-use platform. And even better, Remote helps you rest easy by providing you the most comprehensive intellectual property protection and data security in the industry. They own full local legal entities in all their covered regions, guaranteeing you never have to deal with a third party ever. To save you money, Remote never charges any fees or salary percentages. You get access to everything Remote offers from payroll to compliance and to benefits management for one low flat rate. No hidden fees, no surprises ever. Just the best global employment solution in the business. Best of all, podcast listeners get an even bigger discount. Get your first employee free for 12 months and two months free for any additional employees onboarded during their first year. You can get 50% off Remote's full suite of global employment solutions for your first employee for three months. Just visit remote.com slash leaders and use the promo code leaders. Hey leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge and I'm uh, really excited to welcome Yin Wu today. Yin is the founder of Pulley. Yin, do your do your intro. You know, I never try to learn all the things, you know, ahead of time. So you, you know it better than I do. Tell your story a little bit. Hi, everyone. So I'm Yen. I'm the founder at Pulley. I've been in many ways, I would say almost like a founder my whole career accidentally. So I dropped out of college my senior year to start my first company. And I remember thinking at the time, how hard could it be? Everyone is doing a startup. Uh, it turns out the answer to that is actually incredibly difficult. My co-founder and I learned so many lessons the hard way around, and many of those from just making mistakes along the way. We had a good exit and went to Microsoft. I worked there for a few years and then was really thinking about what is it I do next and kept coming back to this idea of how do you make it easier for anyone to be a founder? When I think about my own experience after dropping out of college, I didn't know anything. And the part that I was really excited about was this idea, this mission that you wanted to make happen in this world. But the part that seemed actually really confusing was everything else. When you raise funding, how much dilution are you going to take? What does that process even look like? What is good in a funding round? When we hire people, how much equity do you actually even give them? How do you explain what the value of this equity is? 
all of that I think is really core to how do you grow and hire and scale a company, but it's not core to finding product market fit and working on your idea. So with Pooly, what we do is we help companies manage their cap table and their equity. And if you think about it, equity is is that unit that's going to accrue in value. If your company does really well, it is the single most important asset in your company because it's the only asset you have that's going to thousand X in value. And so many times what we see is that founders don't have a basic understanding of how equity even works. We have such a core belief at Pulley that founder-led companies are more successful in the long term. But practically, the only way you can even be founder-led is if you maintain control through equity. So with Pulley, we want to make it much easier for any founder to manage equity. Um, We think of ourselves as taking care of all the other things that's related to to equity and growing your company that's not related to finding product market fit so that founders can really focus on doing the thing that matters the most for their business. So you started that based on what you experienced in your your own uh, journey then, you know, from the, from the beginning? Yeah, definitely. So we started that about uh, almost now two years ago. And the, uh, the, the motivation was really, I think that a lot, a lot of times when you're thinking about like, what do you want to do next as a business? What do you want to do next in your career? Oftentimes when you're a founder, I, I think uh, you can get really excited about like different ideas. I, I realized from my own experience, like one of the questions that people often ask is like, what do you want to build or what industry do you want to be in? But there's actually this core question that you miss, which is like, who do you want to help? So there was a company that I had worked on before and we were doing like pickup and uh, like same day laundry delivery. You push a button, you pick up, uh, we'll pick up and wash for your clothes. Great business from a numbers perspective. But like, I wasn't waking up each day, like really excited to go and help people that needed their laundry washed. But with Pulley, I think the part that I'm so excited about is like, we wake up every day as a team and we get to help founders. We get to help and work with people that have like crazy audacious ideas and just be a small part of helping them get closer to making it happen. And so I imagine there's a great deal of difference, right? Between the stories. I mean, it seems like a a lot of complexity and I, I imagine that's a big part of the the tool and the problem set that you have to deal with is like, how do you even make sense of that? programmatically, if there was an easy answer, this is the kind of thing you'd be able to do in a spreadsheet, which we all know everybody tries to do and like makes a total mess out of, you know, so like, what are those complexities? How do you make something complex more simple? And a lot of that comes from like, we, I mean, there's no, the, the, the not so uh, secret strategy as we talk to our users and keep finding out what is, what are the pain points are running into? What we see today is that funding rounds are just far more complicated if you're raising a seed round on safes, you have pre-money safes, post-money safes, pro-rata, all of these different terms that a lot of folks that's starting a company for the first time don't even understand. But they all have actually a meaningful impact to how much equity you own within your company, how much, who's going to take dilution, what it means for your employees if the company does really well. So with Pooley, the way we think about it is our job is how do we demystify this process and create a really simple to use product so we can give you the, the guidelines on what are industry standards. You can push a button and have all of these things handled. You know, it's interesting, like when we first started Pulley, I think like in many ways, my network is like people in, in Silicon Valley that's starting companies. But in terms of people that we feel like we have actually the biggest impact are people outside of kind of the Silicon Valley bubble. It's like an academic starting a company for the first time. For them, understanding like the baseline of like, great, here's some of the things that you have to have that's table stakes in order to do the zero to one of company formation that Pulley can help with. And here's everything else that you can now handle and focus more of your time on. And I'm always curious about the, you know, the Silicon Valley bubble, you know, it's like you, you all exist in this space that is just this mystical, you know, startup land and, you know, all these 
jargon and words and stuff that, you know, like the rest of us can experience. But like, mm -hmm. what's it like when you talk to people, you know, sort of that are not steeped in that? Because yeah. uh, being somewhere else, you know, and I, it's like I have to be sort of educated in all those things, you know, that that's our, our business. But it's so foreign to anybody that, you know, their only experience is like, you know, watching the social network or, <laughs> you know, or I don't know, you know, Silicon Valley, the show. Right. You know, and yeah. maybe, maybe there's more truths in there than than anybody wants to admit. I think that's what makes it funny. But yeah, it's like, how does that. How did you all experience that? Because sometimes it feels like you're not in the club if you're not from Silicon Valley. But, you know, there's a big wide world out there, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of that is also changing. So like I, I'm from Kentucky and I came out to Stanford for college. So I had nothing, I had, I had no understanding of what a, a startup is. This idea that somebody would give you funding to go and pursue your idea. And if it doesn't work out, they'll give you funding again. It's like, it's bizarre in every part of the world. That's not, I, I would say kind of that's outside of this little bubble. I think kind of the pro of being in this area is that you, you really do think kind of the impossible is possible. The, I was walking in our downtown area today and there's these like delivery robots that you can use to order food. So like one step, I would say in advance of DoorDash where you even take the human out of the loop. But being able to kind of like see is like, oh, I, I feel like you get access to new ideas maybe one or two years earlier than it penetrates throughout the rest of the world. It really is kind of a Petri dish for experimentation. And that's really exciting. But I think on the other side is that there can be a lot of groupthink where you see the same type of ideas getting funded. You see the same type of people that's also getting funded. So if you want to think differently, then because I think you have to, in, in many ways, like be contrarian if you're going to be a successful founder. If you're doing what everyone else is doing, then it's really hard to succeed because they've taken away all the uh, all the alpha that you can actually get. If you want to be contrarian as a founder, I think it's also tough here. Going against the mode, I think, is difficult because one of the tough parts is like you're just seeing everyone else like presumably doing so well when you read these TechCrunch articles of everyone raising like you mentioned like peeling behind the onion a little bit more to understand like wait how are people actually doing and and really diving into that I think is, is actually a, quite different yeah it's funny you say about TechCrunch it's just like just laugh at it sometimes you know, every yeah. day now it seems like you know blank raises 50 million dollars to disrupt blank yeah. And and you're kind of just like, how could all that be real? You know, it seems like an absurd amount of money. I come from a bootstrapping background myself. You know, I kind of go, wow, $100 million or a billion dollars raised. And, uh, you know, it's not accessible to all the founders, you know, and, and I, I have conversations a lot with people that are, you know, I'm going to raise money for my agency or something like that. And you kind of go like, oh, I wish you knew like that's completely impossible. You know, <laughs> like it doesn't work that way. I think um, like when, when we check to founders um, that are on poly, like the thing that you have to be aware of is like there's no free lunch. If you raise funding from VCs, there's a certain expectation of growth that is baked in. And that expectation of growth doesn't fit for all businesses. Like you mentioned agency. Agency is very services heavy. So if you want to scale by 10x in your business year over year, which is the expectation a lot of investors have when you take their funding, it just doesn't fit that model. There's certain businesses that can really scale well. But I think the other side is like the, I think this idea of like you need to raise a lot of funding 
funding in order to be successful also isn't really true. If you're able to grow your company, if you take a look at Calendly as an example, if you're able to grow your company without taking outside funding and bootstrap it for a long time, you own more of the company. When we talk about kind of equity and, and payout, like equity in your cap table determines like who gets paid out if there's a successful outcome. And there's many cases in which companies raise in advance of what their actual progress is. And it turns out the next round is really hard to raise. It's hard for them to also get an exit if you raise at a $600 million valuation because the number of buyers, if you were even to just double that at $1.2 billion, you can count on one hand. So I think the struggle is it feels like everyone sometimes is in this rat race where you're looking at the person next to you. They're running really quickly. You feel like you have to do what they're also doing in order to run just as quickly. But it's also useful to kind of take a step back and figure out what is it that you need for, for your business too. Right. That, that planning methodology. So is there a place for cap table management in a, a bootstrap company or, you know, or a service company that like ultimately will never raise money? Yeah. But I think you need to be cognizant of these same principles anyway, because you don't really know like what is a unit of value in my thing. I mean, some of my own businesses, I think like, I don't even remember how many units we allocated. Let me go back to the operating agreement, <laughs> you know, and look at that. Yeah. It's, it's this nebulous concept of, you know, unit of value and how, how would I distribute that? And what does that even mean? And is it, is even, is it valuable? There might be a lot of other ways to compensate, you know, people yeah. in a meaningful fashion. It, it really becomes a, that compensation and incentive question. Like why, why would I want anyone involved or why would they want to be involved? You know, it's, it's, it's complicated on like a, a human scale too. It really is. And equity is not just about investors that have ownership within your company. When you fundraise where they give you exchange of money for equity, it's everyone that also can work at your company. When I think there's also this belief that I have in this world where uh, really your ownership within assets, whether it's equity within a business or whether your home that's what is actually going to accrue value in the long term. I mean, right now we're in this interesting place where inflation is higher than it's ever been. His salary is not increasing at the same rate as inflation, but assets do increase in value. And a world where everyone can also own a small piece of the value that they're helping to accrue is really powerful. It happens to be the case that Silicon Valley tech companies started by giving equity to your employees. But we think this trend will actually happen to all sorts of businesses. Like when you think about an agency model, a lot of times agencies are partnership-based model. That means everyone who's a partner at the agency owns a small piece of the business. And the business does really well. Maybe in the future, it gets acquired by another agency. Great. There's also a payout. Your ownership within the business also determines what percentage of the profits do you have. All of that is baked into what we're creating at Pulley. And I think there's also this bigger trend of this, this bigger question that you have about like, what does compensation look like? Uh, we know it's the case today that really to hire and recruit best talent when you're talking about tech companies, equity is really that unit. It's almost impossible for a startup to compete on a cash basis with any of the fame companies, Facebook, Amazon, Facebook, Google, all of these. You're looking at the cash company they're giving and it's tremendous, insane for like a new grad promising equity that can really grow, potentially grow in value. You never want to promise it'll grow in value because there's definitely a downside there that can potentially grow in value, I think is also the way, is really one of the only ways that you can attract and retain really great talent. And I would also say like the stories that I often think excite me is it's not just about equity and ownership, but more like you're, you're really thinking about growing an ecosystem. 
the reason why you have this ecosystem of innovation in the Bay Area is that you have investors that were ta- willing to take a bet on companies that seemed higher risk than traditional investors would take a bet on. Some of these companies really ended up working out well. The, well, the employees and the early employees that were at these companies can then be angel investors to fund more companies. Think about it if you can take that model to other areas of the world. That's so powerful as well. Yeah, absolutely. And some businesses, it doesn't make sense to think about equity that way, right? And, you know, that there are other ways to compensate. And I think people get caught up sometimes in like equity is the only source, you know, like it it makes complete sense in certain ecosystems, like exactly what you just described. I need to provide, I have a high risk proposition. So I need to provide an outsized potential for return if you work at my thing, because I can't pay for that risk right now with a $500,000 cash salary, I can just say, hey, do you want to place a bet with us and be part of, of that? That's really you know what's happening in the equity side. Some businesses don't lend themselves to that. It would be almost unreasonable to come to a, a business that the founder never had it, wanted to exit. The founder doesn't have a plan in that way. And there's a false promise of you know giving a piece of a thing that kind of isn't valuable. It's like selling, you know, the proverbial, uh, I could sell you a stock in my Brooklyn bridge or something like that. You know, and like, I think people need to understand the whole vocabulary of that. Yeah. I think that education can like, definitely needs to work both ways. Um, I kind of push on the thinking of that because I mean, we even see this in the cryptocurrency space where you have a lot of projects that raise funding on tokens or give tokens to early employees. And then you get a, a huge payday. I think that's kind of on the one extreme where like, great, like you get an asset of something and then it accrues value, like in a really short amount of span. And then there's like, great, I'm going to start a business that's going to run for the next hundred years. I have no expectation of exiting. But I, I'd also say it's like, it's really powerful when people feel like they own a piece of something. This model is not unique to just like tech companies, like co-ops. A lot of times it's group ownership. Not a single person owns uh, an entity. I mean, limited liability corps, like by definition, is just a group of folks that can own a, a company as well. So I think this idea of equity is not just about the payout, but but really about incentive alignment. If people feel like they're contributing to the overall success of the business and the value of the business grows, then for them to share in the, the growth, I think is um, is really powerful to get people rolling in the same direction. Right. Sure. Sure. And I, so I guess, you know, as a, as a founder and talking about founder control, yeah, you know, that, that is the, you know, proverbial 51%, right. Or, you know, actual 51%, like to maintain control, you need to have more votes than everybody else. Right. And well, yeah, it's a little right. bit more complicated than that too. Cause now <laughs> sure. you see like super voting votes and then there's more and classes of stock. Of and, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. All that stuff. Yeah. And founder control no matter what is sometimes baked in you know so i think that stuff gets confusing so what do you typically see as a as a framework for people to get started with this you know maybe i've yeah i don't know you know i've started my thing got it off the ground and now i want to essentially recap and maybe i Mm -hmm. I move from an llc to a c-corp because i might want to raise money i want to compensate people in a different way and there's there's always that question there of what I don't know, how much do I carve out to give other yeah. people and how do I allocate, how do I map value to it that because I don't really know what it's worth. Well, I think the, the answer to that is, is almost like you need to work backwards. There's not like a one size fits all, as is most cases uh, for, for these kind of complicated questions. But the way that you work backwards is think about what is what does your business need? Like when you think about how much equity do I give to employees? Great. 
how many people do you need to hire? If you are starting a, I don't know, a hardware business, or you're starting like a, a business that needs to hire a lot of people to go to from the zero to one, then great, you need to figure out like this is the amount of equity I need in order to make the business get to a certain level of revenue and then potentially raise your next round if that's what you want to do. If you're doing a software business and it's the case you don't need to hire that much people, great. Maybe the amount of equity you set aside for employees is is then different. I think on the side of like, we, we often get asked the question, like, what are the standards when it comes to fundraising? And there really is no answer there because it, it's so industry dependent. When you look at a space like biotech, biotech, it tends to be that you raise at very moderate valuations until you can prove that this thing can work with some tests and amazing. Then you're off to the races, which is different than like, um, I don't know, a SaaS business, software only, where you have predictable revenue, where great, you raise high early on, but then your curve isn't nearly as steep too. So I, I think when it comes to like, how, what are the standards? Like general rule of thumb is like, if you're raising at the seed stage, what you want to give up in, in terms of dilution is anywhere from like 10 to 20%. In their next race stage of funding everyone subsequent, you're you're giving away less solution because your business presumably should be doing better. You're giving away less solution for more funding. Yeah, absolutely. You know, think of the education standpoint, obviously a solution like, like Pulley would kind of bake that in. What would you say are the best education resources for people that just want to get off the ground on on this kind of discussion? Like, you know, I, yeah. I don't know anything about this. So what do I do? Yeah, I think that there's um, a number of good resources when it comes uh, to to what's out there. Like Y Combinator has a lot of great zero to one articles on what do you actually need as a founder to get started. Cooley is a law firm. They have a lot of great resources that dives into some of the technicalities of the legal side. Clerky also has great resources too. It's a startup that helps companies with incorporation. And Stripe Atlas has some resources as well. It's, it's really tailored to founders. I do think it's the case that when you look at what's out there for starting a company, it's so much easier than any other time in history. It used to be the case that uh, even like incorporating, um, figuring out payroll is so hard. But now, like a lot of these services, really, it's like the push of a button, and you can you can get started. So, I think it's exciting for anyone that wants to, wants to do the zero to one and then take that leap of faith too. Yeah, yeah. And are you a big Peter Thiel fan? You keep saying zero to one, so I'm just curious. Oh, um, I have read that book. <laughs> but yeah. No, I don't. Uh, I, he kind of hijacked that one, but yeah. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, so I'm old enough to have started to start up prior to microservices, prior to. SaaS companies, you know, sort of when we had to rack a server and, you know, pull cable and uh, things were expensive. And, you know, it, it is a fantastic time. And I think that draws a lot of, like you said, like you don't know how hard it is, right? Because it seems easy to, you can now pull up the, the frame of the house real easy. And then it's like, oh no, what do we do in the house? Like I can make a company, but that doesn't mean I made a business. And I think it's important for people to spend time and you know educate around that. And I'm still a fan that revenue matters. I know there's a lot of businesses where you know the great valuations come, you know, prior to making money. But ultimately, that's what runway is. Like, can I can I outrun the, you know, the challenge of making some money at some point to pay someone back, whether or not it's myself or an investor or employees, and and that's where you need to be careful on. You know, don't don't overraise or don't overpromise because uh, you know ultimately that's a house of cards right if it doesn't if it doesn't play out and you did want to provide value to everybody that, that you promised it I think the part that um, some folks also 
get maybe like lost in is like thinking it's it's never like a straight path to making anything successful um uh it may seem like that if you're reading all the press readings because that's intentional like as a business you want everything to look uh wonderful (laughs) from the outside but how it's actually made feels like it's just a case of expectations versus reality like even in the case like revenue matters because ultimately if your company is going to go public like you need revenue in order to pay people I think it is like different for, for different types of businesses. Like when we think about um, Clubhouse, for example, Clubhouse raised that insane valuation. And now it's the case people are wondering, like, how is it actually going to monetize? Can it sustain its growth? With these types of social businesses, you need a certain level of folks on the platform to sustain any sort of advertising-based business. So they should they should raise, they should grow. And I mean, Paul and Rohan have started like many other companies in, this, in, in social before. So I, I think it's like the... It's it's interesting to see how like I, I guess like founders I think today are a bit more can also be a bit more sophisticated in their thinking about how do you move funding as a lever in order to get to the next milestones that you feel like your businesses need to hit. Yeah, yeah. So I'll shift gears on you. We talked a little yeah. bit off mic about uh, being a parent, you know, yeah. and and babies and startups, and you know, I just wonder what that's like. There's so much discussion now about, you know, I don't, whether you camp it in the great res- great resignation or, you know, any of this stuff, like, like the way we handle life and paid leave and, you know, all these things are sort of up in the air now. And you said you had a little one at the same time yeah. as starting the business and I've done that. And I just wonder, like, tell that, tell that story a little bit. Yeah, I um so I the I have a little one and he's kind of a pandemic baby. Had him at the beginning of both when we were starting the company as well as when COVID hit. I feel like one of the benefits you do get from working at home is it does make it a lot easier, I feel like for working moms. It's a sense like I can see him during the day for like quick breaks. We're really fortunate in that we have grandparents to help take care of him. And I think that that definitely makes our jobs a, a lot easier. I, it's such a hot topic when you talk about anything when it comes to to parenting and to work, like whether you lean in or whether you lean out. At the end of the day, <laughs> right. it just like depends on what do you want to do. I like my view is just do what you think that you want to do and then don't overthink it. It's entirely possible to do a startup and also to have a kid. Like, is it easy? No way. And like, is my perception of like, what do we want to do with work family balance going to be the same in 10 years as it is today? No, but I don't think that should preclude people from trying in the first place. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I uh, yeah. I did two babies at the same time as doing two different startups and you get over being exhausted, you know, but <laughs> there are definitely times and, you yeah. know, and, and there's that home setup of, you know, if you're by yourself versus if you have a partner, you know, to raise a, a kid with, I mean, things make a big difference if you have a help, you know, like a, a family infrastructure or if you're out on your own, you know, those are those are all part of the equation. And I think sometimes that the story has been told that it one precludes the other. And I, I agree with you. I don't think that's that's true. And sometimes starting your business is like for me, my most recent one is just like my partner is a parent also. And yeah, let's make a thing that is in fact not wholly going to eat our lives. Yeah. You know, we want to drive our kids to school and pick our kids up from school and have flexibility. And that isn't just work from home. It's the idea that contiguous blocks of work are going to be limited. And so how do we build a really productive system that can hire other people to do that? Because that's our goal at this stage of life. And yeah. the the realistic planning of not just the financial, but but time. I mean, time is our, you know, 
yes, equity is the most important asset for, you know, ultimately for counting money. But let's face it, if we can't put the time in, you know, you're never going to get the the time back. And like, I think maybe the tough part is that people, I think the sense that you can really have it all is really not possible unless you're, um, it's really not possible because you do have limited time in the day. Assuming that you're only sleeping even eight hours. Great. If you're maximizing every other hour in a day, it's not enough. So I, I think this sense of like, you're going to have to make some trade-offs somewhere, figure out where the trade-offs that you want to make are. Um, I mean, we see like phenomenal businesses started where people have little kids and people have like a million things to do. So yeah, entirely possible. Just you're making some trade-offs. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you talked about at the you know beginning of your career. Yeah things that were hard that you didn't expect that, you know, you came back and this sounds like those are big lessons. I always like to go back and just go like, what was the surprising part? You know, whether or not you dropped out of school or something like that, but you start your first business and you sure don't know what, you know, you're up against and, you know, what, what were those things when you think back on them? So maybe the themes I would say are are twofold. The first is like um, expectation of like, what is risky? is often flipped. Like what people think is really risky is not that risky. What you think is not that risky could actually be really risky. So like uh, the example I would make is like, I actually think dropping out of school is not that risky. In my mind, it was like worst case. Stanford also happens to make it really easy for you to stop out because you can go back at any time. Great. You start a company when you're 22 and then it doesn't work out. Awesome. Go back to school, go through a normal recruiting process and get a job. That's the worst case situation. The other, I think, is actually like what you've pointed to, which is time. Like if you're working on something that isn't working and you're spending years, the opportunity cost is huge. So that's the type of experience where like day to day, you don't actually feel the risk you're taking on. But over time, it actually really matters. So I, I think for us, like one of the the early mistakes that we also made, which is a classic first time founder mistake, is thinking like, if you build it, they will come almost never happens. For Pulley, like we thought a lot about how do we get distribution and have an unfair advantage? That's let's go through Y Combinator. Let's partner with Stripe Atlas. Let's do all the things that give us an advantage so we can get access to, to founders with crazy audacious ideas and get them on the platform early so we can really grow with them as they grow. We thought a lot more about distribution when it comes to this idea than we did because knowing that just like, great, if you build something amazing, but you don't have any distribution, that means no one can actually know about what you're building. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. I remember doing uh, in some of my early adventures sort of a well, I put up a website and I'm smart and we do this stuff and everything will be fine and you know like and get a phone line and wait for it to ring and you know you just realize like distribution is everything. You know, it really is doesn't matter how good the thing is. It's I've come way around on that. That you don't need a perfect product. You need a way to get rapid feedback and get get people on the thing and using it and like just keep up with that curve like that's how you know and and becoming aware of channel distribution and partnerships and you know all types of ways that you can aggregate demand it's just not the easiest thing to to grok at at first it's not and i the um the founder of shopify this great tweet recently saying like people oftentimes over um overvalue this idea, the the idea, the the vision that you come out with. Um, That's, I mean, oftentimes for a lot of these great businesses, that also changes over time. What really matters on a day-to-day basis is how do you execute? How do you get to the first dollar in the door, then the next 10, and then keep growing and keep going? There's so much 
there's so much that comes up along along the way. And I, I think this idea of like distribution is also not fixed. Like, great, like you need to find new channels too. Once something works, whatever takes you from zero to one may not take you from one to 10. I think that one of the strengths that I have as a founder on the team as well is like zero sunk cost fallacy. If something doesn't work, like if you're the person running the company, you also need to just quickly pivot and figure out something else too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if sunk costs actually do happen and they get worse and they get heavier. And the more you double down on a bad decision just because you thought yeah. it was a good idea, you know, it costs you so much more. I love that opportunity cost thing, you know, that you said, like, I think time has a tremendous hidden opportunity cost that the more and more we just try to beat something into market acceptance, the the worse we do. And it just doesn't matter how good you thought it was. And it might've checked mm -hmm. out all the boxes on paper and, and ultimately it just doesn't work. Nobody wants to pay for that thing. And you may never know why, but you can yeah. draw lines in the sand and just say, you know, af after we spend X amount of time or X amount of money, we're going to stop if we don't reach these markers. And if I've learned anything, it's set those markers and that's going to hurt. It sucks. Yeah. To, it sucks to kill your thing. Yeah, but and I it's think, better than dying, you know, it's like you live to fight another day. That's actually exactly. And I think this is why also like um, starting a company is one of the most valuable lessons you can take. And I'd actually encourage anyone who's like just getting started in their career to do that. Like when, when you start something, when you're early in your career, I think there's two big advantages. One is that you're not the opportunity cost is actually really low because you would have had an entry level position somewhere else. It's not the same as when you're like mid career and you're giving up something that seems like a lot for you to pivot when you have five kids or two kids or a family, all of that to take care of with certain lifestyle expectations is much harder than when you're like a single person that can just go and ramen tastes delicious. <laughs> ramen always that, tastes delicious. <laughs> ramen is always great. Yeah. And I think the, the second one is the, the oftentimes like when we're seeing people like that's come from more of a, a large company, there's like also like a large company mindset. The skill sets that you learn can be like, you can do great in your job. If you super specialize, if you like learn how to manage up in your career, but like when you're responsible for building a company, what your scorecard is against is like, did you grow the numbers? Did you give customers what they want? There's, it's fairly objective. If you grow the number of users, if you grow your revenue, then you're successful. If you didn't, then you're not. To, to actually benchmark your performance against like clearly measurable goals versus like, did I just do well based on my manager's expectations of me is just very different. Oh yeah. The compensation systems. If you look at coming out, of, I feel bad often for people that have think because I have business experience, you know, the, the, I don't know the, I was a VP of a bank for a lot of years, therefore I could start a business. And, you know, you just kind of go like, wow, like that's going to hurt <laughs> you know, because you get used to people doing things to support you. And then you don't have those structures at all. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not enough to have specialization. Those are great opportunities for somebody to go out and partner though, and say, you know, I have industry specific knowledge that, you know, I think would be useful, but I don't know how to run a business, you know, so partner yeah. with somebody there. Yeah. And we also say it's like, I mean, I feel like the hardest thing for, for many companies today is hiring. It's one of the most competitive hiring environments that you're in. It kind of goes hand in hand. If funding is freely available, then hiring becomes harder because so many startups have raised capital. 
And the, we get a lot of inbound resumes and I would say like, there's a few things that also really stand out. The ones that stand out is when people have built something, uh, when either they've been a former founder, they know what it's like to be boots on the ground and, and make something possible when it seems so difficult. That mentality I think is like, you want people that will just think of it as their responsibility and get shit done. I think the other that has been surprising for us is a lot of times, like there's a certain degree of like, do you really want something? that is is missing like if you've been in a a comfortable role and it's not quite the same and we also really try to screen for folks that can also live with ambiguity i think a lot of people like the idea of working at a startup but the idea of working at a startup when it translates into actuality is there's chaos everywhere so being able to work with the ambiguity and and actually like create order from something that seems really just uh, unstructured is um is is not something for everyone and that's okay yeah that is so true we see that all the time working on, on scaling up staffing is like you really need to understand that no one's going to direct you. This thing that you're being hired to do has not been done before, you know, at this company. There's nothing to look at. There, there, there isn't documentation yeah. you know, or there's no help file. So, yeah. you know, figure it out and sell your idea. You know, uh, if I've learned anything, it's that you you really everybody's in sales, you know, because you need to, you need to be convincing, you know, when you push something out there. I think like you asked the question of like, what other things do you often make mistake on as a first time? It's like the importance of storytelling, I think is often overlooked. Sales is like storytelling. You have to tell this vision of like why you believe the company is going to be so successful when it's not there yet. I mean, an amazing storyteller is like Elon Musk. Being able to convince everyone to do something as crazy audacious as going to space is non-trivial. So being able to tell the story of both yourself as well as the company and, and where you're headed, I think is really critical for for fundraising, for convincing people to join you on your journey too. Yeah. And that authentic storytelling too, because you can tell when somebody, you know, worked on their elevator pitch so much, but it just (laughs) doesn't feel right. You know, you're just like, I don't think you believe that even. Yeah. (laughs) So we, I think for some, I remember being involved in some startup stuff where I just felt like we were training founders too much to do slideware, you know, Hmm. that like we were training to pitch too much. And I think you've seen, even when you look at Ycom and, you know, 500 and the different programs, they've moved away from like being all about pitch, 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 and more into like execution, which I think is absolutely right. Because when I, I stepped back from some of the accelerator work I did, it's like, you know, we really didn't teach anybody how to actually market or sell anything here. Yeah. I like to, yeah. uh, I like to do, are you, are you an executive salesperson as well? You know, how do you have to take that role on? Uh, we just brought on board a VP of sales. I'm really excited he's on board because like with everyone that you bring on the team, you want to you want them to be better. I mean, our hiring bars, they have to be better than everyone else on the team on some dimension in order to make it a hire. So we're stoked to have Jason on board. He's um he's been phenomenal. But yeah, in the early days, like as a founder, you do a bit of everything, whether it's sales, whether it's product, you do whatever it needs in order to get the company off the ground. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'll give you a couple of minutes here. I always say to like put on your your futurist hat, what should everybody be aware of and looking at, whether it's about, you know, your your world in pulley or, you know, anything else that that jumps out at you, you know, what, what would you say the next few years are going to make important? I think this idea of like ownership is going to be really important. It's going to impact how people think about what roles do they want to take on in their uh, in their next job. Um, I think that you're just really seeing aspects of this like play out in so many industries, whether it's crypto and, and this idea of tokens and ownership, whether it's in the space that we're in where people want assets within companies. 
I think that right now we're actually still very much in the early days and I'm really excited to see how this industry will play out. Very cool. We'll call it the ownership economy instead of the sharing. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yen, this is this is great, really insightful stuff. If anybody wants to get in touch with you and you know company, what are the best channels to do that? Yeah, so you can check me out on Twitter. It's at Yen Yen Wu. And then with Pulley, you can check it out. Go to Pulley.com. All right. Thank you so much for uh, coming out. We look forward to pushing this out to the audience. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.